Former Democratic Nebraska Senator Ben Nelson served two terms in the Senate, retiring in 2013. Now he's looking back at his time in the Senate and finds issues with the lack of bipartisanship in his new memoir, Death of the Senate. One main problem, former Senator Nelson suggests, is that too many members of Congress come to Washington determined to stop things from happening rather than finding ways to make things happen. People from back home don't send somebody to Washington to be the leader of a caucus. Uh, And the leadership should be one of coordinating and making sure that things happen. He's interviewed by Republican Senator Ben Sass, also of Nebraska. More in a moment. Hello and welcome uh, to Book TV. It is my pleasure today to be able to interview Ben Nelson from the great state of Nebraska. Ben was born in McCook. He is the husband to Diana, the father of four, served 12 years in the U.S. Senate from 2001 through 2013, and we're obviously going to center our discussion on that today. Um, But Ben was also governor of Nebraska for eight years in the 1990s, a period period during which Nebraska won the national championship in football 38% of all years that he was governor. So Ben, um, given our partisan differences, I don't know if, uh, if I'm supposed to campaign for you to come back as governor, but if you can win national championships for our football team three eighths of all years, I think it would unite our state again. So welcome. Good to be with you today. Thank you. I I can't take full credit. I just want people to remember that it happened during my watch. Very nice. Well, uh, it's good good to get to talk with you today about your new book, The Death of the Senate. Congratulations on its publication. Um, Let's let's begin with two moments when the Senate has been divided 50-50. We currently have a 50-50 Senate uh, where the tie-breaking vote is is cast by uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, And when you arrived in the Senate 20 years ago, it was a 50-50 Senate as well. How about you set the stage for us by contrasting those two moments? What's different about a 50-50 Senate today versus a 50-50 Senate 20 years ago? I'm not sure there's a real difference in terms of, of how, uh, uh, how it would work. Uh, having a 50-50 means that, uh, at least in terms of the numbers, you'll have to get somebody to switch over across the aisle from the other party to vote for something you want, or the vice president is the tiebreaker. I think the uh, uh, Senate back uh, tw- uh, 20 years ago was less divided than it is today. Uh, a hyperpartisanship uh, began somewhere between uh, the 20 years ago and, and today, uh, roughly maybe 10 years ago uh, for earnest, in earnest. Uh, so it's a hyperpartisanship, I think, that is different today than it was back then. The other thing that, uh, that occurred uh, is that uh, 9-11 uh, united the, the country which may have uh, accounted for uh, more, uh, more or less partisanship and more bipartisanship uh, in the thinking of, of finding solutions. But it could, the same thing could be the, the case of today uh, with, with the, the outside influence uh, on the United States right now by, by foreign interests uh, uh, being discussed from time to time. So it seems to me that uh, there isn't any reason basic reason why the Senate couldn't perform today like it did before, if there's trust, if there's an understanding uh, and mutual interest 
and, and we move away from divisive and divisive issues uh, and spend t- more time talking about uh, unity and what we find that we agree with. Well, when you talk about the death of the Senate and in your narrative there, as you went from your arrival, your election to the Senate was in 2000, and so your inauguration, your swearing in was in 2001, um, to you just identified a marker about 10 years ago, and then you cast the, the trend line forward to today. What are the key inflection points? What is different in that decline of trust and, as you phrase it, even the death of the Senate? Well, the, I think the politics of, of getting elected today have uh, changed from uh, unit, unity, unit, agreeing to bring people together and find commonality, uh, moving more towards uh, what appears to be a bit tribal, at least, to uh, find a base and support the base uh, and divide the country. You can win elections through division. Uh, but you, it's very difficult to lead the country to govern or preside uh, when when your politics uh, are division as opposed to addition and multiplication. You know, I, I think back to being as governor, uh, when I ran for re-election in 94, uh, even though I had a scrape by to get elected in, in uh, uh, earlier, four years earlier in 90, uh, then uh, I won by overwhelmingly. Uh, the uh, a large margin uh, based on the fact that I, I promised, and I think I did, work to bring people together because I got more Republican votes than my Republican opponent. Just, so if it's a question of whether you seek to be a unifier, to uniter, uh, or whether you want to be a divider. Uh, let's stay on that point you made about how campaigns today can often be run from the edges. Um, but then you can't necessarily govern from the middle. In the mid-1990s, there's some polling data that shows about 25, 26% of Americans considered themselves centrists, and they were slightly higher propensity voters than folks to the right and to the left of them. Today, only about 7% of Americans, depending on which poll you look at, um, but it looks like high single digits uh, percentages of Americans consider themselves centrists, and sometimes they look like lower propensity voters. What's your major explanation? What are the key variables that drive why the American people have become more polarized? And then let's turn to how the elected officials respond to that polarization. Because the emphasis on division uh, and divisive politics uh, with with wedge issues constantly being thrown out in front, uh, just red meat uh, to to strengthen the base. In other words, it's uh, the equivalent of two prize fighters in a ring coming out uh, at the sound of the bell to uh, engage, and then the bell rings, and they go back to their corners. And there, there's no no time in between where they're, they're they're working on things together. I think that is what what really is the problem. That politics, uh, winning elections today has been both sides running to your to your to your right or, or to your left, as opposed to looking for ways that you're going to work together uh, somewhere in the center center uh, where where the where the country ultimately uh, is most uh, comfortable. You spend a chapter in this book talking about your role in some of the gangs. Uh, some of that is about specific legislation or about specific um, log jams that were uh, there about specific nominees who might be confirmed or, or filibustered. Um, but let's talk a little bit about personalities before we get to some of those policy divides. 
who do you think the most uh, influential senator was interpersonally during your 12 years in the Senate? Not just who had the, a position of authority, but interpersonally who could persuade people? Uh, who, uh, on, who else was, was in that capacity mean? Or? Who, yeah, I mean, setting yourself aside, who did you yeah. see oh, as okay. the most um, persuasive people interpersonally in the Senate? Well, John Bro. Uh, from Louisiana was was really the person who had uh, I think most to do with uh, finding uh, caucuses that joined together or Cajun caucus something like that bringing somebody else together uh, Joe uh, Lieberman joining together with uh, uh, John uh, Bro uh, reaching across uh, get, to get uh, John McCain who who was largely. Uh, bipartisan in much of what he did with the McCain-Feingold, bill after bill, uh, he was involved. He worked with uh, Ted Kennedy on a on a health care issue uh, as well. So th- those were all, I don't know that Ted Kennedy was necessarily the, uh, the one that reached across the aisle uh, a, a great deal, but when somebody reached across the aisle, he accepted that, uh, that support. So th- it really, you have to have uh, pastors and receivers uh, in football. You have to have the same thing uh, in, in in politics. A person has to be receptive and the other person has to be willing to to take the uh, the risk of, of seeing if somebody will join with you. You tell a number of stories in the book about CODELs, the congressional delegation trips that you went on abroad to, to support our troops, to learn, to do oversight, uh, to thank our troops, to let them know they're not forgotten. Tell us about your your first couple of trips and what was the bipartisan experience like on some of those congressional delegations? Well, one of the first uh, was was not to in a war zone uh, of uh, on the Middle East, but it was down in Colombia, uh, where the, the drug war was uh, underway in full swing, and uh, so uh, a group of us went down to uh, to Colombia, and uh, we spent time with the with the uh, the president of Colombia as well as with the uh, the military flew over the the uh, uh, area where poppy see poppy was grown and was being eradicated uh in the process so uh but i got to know uh uh for example uh, uh got to know uh bill nelson from florida better and i got to know uh the others that were on the trail on the trip as well uh better because at the time we spent together and it was a it was an enlightening experience about about what was going on in South America and particularly in, in Colombia. Then, of course, uh, following the uh, uh, 9-11, uh, I went to to uh, uh, to Afghanistan as well as to to uh, uh, to other other places in the Middle East. But in particular in Afghanistan, uh, I went with uh, with uh, Tim Hutchinson and uh, with uh, uh, Olympia Snow uh, and others, and we got to better acquainted, and we were able to work together. Olympia was, was always one that I, I reached across to, or she reached across to me to see if we could find commonality on on particular issues, and we worked together a great deal. So, getting to know people, pulling tricks. I'm a trickster, pulling tricks on people. Uh, always figuring out whether whether I can get by with it. I don't want to overstep, but being a bit of a of a, a, a an agitator with with a few tricks along the way. Uh, on one trip, I went with a couple of my colleagues. I'm not going to say who they were, but we went into the war zone 
and uh, I had uh, for, for them uh, two T-shirts with with bullseyes uh, on the T-shirts, and uh, mine mine was plain blank, you know. But just a few things like that, where where you where you begin to have personal relationships, no matter whether you you create them through humor or through uh, just being together, finding out about families, learning more about what what concerns them outside of politics. Uh, it, 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 it's amazing how it, it breaks uh, uh, the, the silence uh, because you begin to talk to one another. You know what? You've been on some high, on uh, Codell's as well. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, nobody ever set me up with a T-shirt with a bullseye on it. <laughs> but for, for deer season this November, I'm definitely going to try this prank on my 10-year-old son. Absolutely. Absolutely. It works. Uh, by the way, what is Quintron? And Zenmar. Oh, that's when I was governor. Uh, because of my uh, prag- 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 uh, pranks all the time. Uh, apparently, uh, the old uh, show uh, on there, uh, hidden hidden camera. Uh, you know, they they came, Yeah, they they decided to come to uh, Lincoln and in the Capitol set up an operation. Uh, so, Canada camera set it up. Had in my office, uh, and then we set it up in the um, in the in the conference room, so that when they would bring somebody in, some poor and suspecting soul from uh, the uh, uh, out in the rotunda, and said the governor would like to talk to you about something that he's thinking about and would like to get your opinion about. It. Well, they would get seated and they'd be real comfortable, uncomfortable, wondering what I'm going to ask them about. And I would tell them, look, the, the, the name of for the state of Nebraska has served us well. But, you know, if we want to break out of the, uh, the, the, the crowd here of, of names right now, what we should be doing is looking at things like they have in the, mil- in the uh, oil industry. Esso, Exxon, let's do something different than, than a regular traditional name. Uh, what do you think about Quentron or Zenmar? Well, their faces would fall, their mouths, in some cases, dropped open. And one woman uh, crossed her arms real quickly like that and said, if you lost your mind, and uh, I said, not yet, but um, that, that could still happen. There's plenty of time. But uh, when I tell them, smile, you're on candid camera. It, uh, it was just one of those fun deals like I, I like to do. And, uh, I've, I've given Diana uh, a break on 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 practical jokes because otherwise she would have left me by now. I'll tell you, uh, I'm, I'm lethal. Well, at, at some point later in the, in the program, we may come back to what you did to Diane in Russia. When you, the name of our state to Quintron, I was away in college and I had some friends uh, reach out saying, we're not going to get new t-shirts that say Quintron <laughs> we're be while we're uh, expats outside the state. So um, let, let's stay just for another minute at, at national security and the, the history over 240 years of national security crises to kind of unify the country. You came into the office in, uh, you became a senator in January of 2001. And obviously it was a contentious time and an equally divided Senate. Um, and then in uh, September of that year is the tragedy of 9-11 as as 3,000 of our fellow countrymen and women were killed by jihadists. Talk us through what the Senate was like in the eight months before 9-11 and what happened in the months after 9-11. Well, 
Well, in the eight months, uh, the, the issue uh, of, of importance uh, that, that had everybody's attention was the, uh, the first Bush tax cuts. And um, uh, I, I went back there promising to be supportive of tax cuts, but I wanted a balanced budget uh, the, at the same time. And we had a balanced budget uh, at that time. We were paying down the national debt. Uh, and so there were surpluses projected as far as the eye could see. And so the Bush administration decided that they would pursue something uh, $1.6 trillion of tax cut that would be payable over several years. And uh, a group of us said, well, you know, I, I think we'd be more comfortable uh, with, with a number, but we, we shouldn't be on the, on the upside on it. We ought to find some safe issue uh, size of a, of a tax cut. Also, uh, what if uh, what if we stop paying down the debt? What if we have a, an incident, uh, or we uh, we stop paying it down because we're spending more, or we revenues fall off? Some sort of a stopgap, or a, a a if you will, a a trigger. Or I figured out, let's have a a circuit breaker. In other words, if we stop paying down the debt on whatever the whatever whatever the debt was. Uh, and whatever the budget was, it would stop things in, in, in step. And we would go back and look at spending and we go back and look at the tax cut and make adjustments to keep the budget balanced, paying down the debt. Well, I got that. Well, then the question was, it was 1.6 uh, too much. Well, a group of us, including Senator Bro uh, and, and a few others, decided that maybe something more like 1.25 oh, would be 1.2 2.5 million uh, trillion would be a better better number, but be closer. And I got uh, that included uh, when what we finally negotiated with the with the Bush White House. And and during those discussions, I uh, met with uh, the vice president in a in a room, small room, uh, with a small group. And and we talked about he talked about dropping it from 1.6 down to 1.45. And we were still at 1.25. And we, I think we have actually compromised at 1.35. We were compromising, even though it was a divided Senate. And, uh, and, and they had, they had the, uh, the, the, the vote, the tiebreaker with the vice president. So we were able, even during those times, starting off uh, following the Bush v. Gore uh, case in the Supreme Court that some people think elected the president as opposed to the people. You always have contention about something like that. But we broke that right through that, right through that. And we were able to negotiate and work together and find, find a bipartisan deal. What has happened to interest in a balanced budget in either or both parties in the last decade? How do you explain it? It's uh, it's gone. I mean, uh, I mean, there may be some interest in it, but there's how much discussion is it? It's always how much is it going to be over uh, the over the uh, balanced budget? Uh, how much are we going to borrow? That's it's you know, once you start using the credit card, it's very very difficult to stop. I think we would have been okay, and if nine uh, eleven hadn't occurred, at least for some period of time, we might have been okay for a longer period. But there would have been something else, another excuse, another reason to uh, to spend more than we're, we were taking in. We'll bounce back and forth between policy and and politics and personality. Um, returning to some of the personalities that were here during your uh, twelve years in the Senate, who is Harry Reid? 
Harry Reid is uh, uh, a former Capitol policeman, uh, went to law school, uh, got elected, uh, I think, first uh, lieutenant governor in uh, uh, in Nevada, and then came to the United States Senate. Harry Reid is, uh, I, I think, somebody that if you don't know him, you're not going to understand him. The more you know him, the more you understand him. Uh, he, he boxed, uh, he, you know, so... He's a fighter in a, in, a, in, a, in a very real sense, as well as in, in a uh, 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 less real sense. In other words, he, he will work with people, but he will stand his ground and, uh, and he will insist on certain things. I can tell you that I had a relationship with Harry Reid that uh, I never got pushed uh, or Harry never pushed me uh, for anything. We worked together when we could. I supported him when I could. When I didn't, I did not support uh, and yet, in spite of that, uh, maybe in lieu of that, we had a, uh, a personal relationship that, that continues today because out of the blue, I'll get a call from him just talking what's going on and chat, chat back and forth. And, and he says nice things about me to, uh, to my friends and I think to my enemies, I suspect. Explain the role of uh, Senate Majority Leader. Um, historically, you know, 100, 150 years ago, the position would almost not even be recognized in a in a consensus body. And the position appears to be coming something more akin to the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Explain what the, the majority leader's role is when you arrived and then how it evolved during your time here. Well, it, when I arrived, uh, Trent Lott uh, uh, would always joke, uh, his, his job was to keep the, uh, the trains moving on time. In other words, he, that the legislation would move and uh, we, we'd quit at dinner time and go home uh, and have dinner with our spouse and family. That was, uh, that was the way he saw the, the leadership. Now he took an active role, worked within the, uh, uh, the, the caucus, but, um, but I think he, he was less likely to push like the Republican leader is today and maybe the Democratic leader is today. Uh, I think uh, it, it's it's uh, overblown uh, the relate the uh, uh, power. It shouldn't be the power that it seems to uh, possess today. Uh, the, the leadership role shouldn't have that power. Uh, so I look at it this way: that uh, Mitch McConnell got two votes uh, from Kentuckians, uh, his own, I suspect, and I assume that that. Uh, the other senator from uh, Kentucky, Rand Paul, voted for him for, for uh, leader. And same thing with, uh, with Chuck Schumer. Uh, people from back home don't send somebody to Washington to be the leader of a caucus. Uh, and the leadership should be one of coordinating and making sure that things happen. But it shouldn't be where, where you had, and I'm, I'm saying this uh, straightforward, where, where you had Mitch McConnell say at the beginning of, uh, of uh, Obama's term that his, his, his goal was to prevent and make sure he didn't get a second term. Now, you know, was he speaking on behalf of the, of the caucus? Because he's the caucus leader. Uh, I don't think he spoke for every, every Republican member of that caucus any more than I would want the Democrat to say that about a Republican. I would have objected uh, if Tom Daschle had said that his goal as leader of the Democrats at the time uh, was to make sure that uh, George W. Bush didn't get a second term. That's, it's, in my, my opinion, it's just wrong that the leadership has so much power today that it can dictate 
uh, as opposed to lead and explain. And now maybe some of your colleagues and you may have a different opinion of that. I'm looking at it from the outside, having seen this sort of develop to the point where it is today. What does the filibuster uh, mean for a state like ours, for a state like Nebraska? Uh, the filibuster is designed to protect uh, minority interests that uh, that would not otherwise be uh, be available. Now, you know, we we can say that in the in the House of Representatives, obviously, then uh, the there's a difference between the states because it's all po- apportioned on the basis of of uh, population. In the Senate, that's different. Uh, in the Senate, you have each state, uh, whether it's Maine or Nebraska or California or New York, each has two. But still, within the Senate, uh, when you have caucuses and you have a partisan uh, majority of of one or the other, um, that if with the with the filibuster, you have the opportunity to make things uh, deliberative. And you know, it doesn't always work that way, but it's there. And when it does work that way, it's what the Senate was all about. A deliberative, the world's greatest deliberative body. Uh, deliberative is, is sort of a, a word on a shelf uh, in politics right now. But as we think about it, that's one of the things that can, can drive it. If you have to have a 60 vote threshold for a cloture vote, and I'm talking inside, this is inside baseball at the uh, moment for everybody else, but I think you and I both understand that it, that the purpose of the cloture vote is not to be overused, but to be there available for those those rare times when when it's necessary in order to bring uh, together the Senate to uh, do things on a sixty vote level. Uh, now you've got an escape valve with a with the so called uh, uh, budget reconciliation approach uh, resolution. That, uh, that that gets you out of the, the filibuster for some things. But the unfortunate thing was that uh, uh, both parties have, have uh, uh, knocked down the filibuster when it comes to judicial nominations. It's a big mistake in my mind. So let, let's focus on that for a minute, because that's in the gap, the two-year period between our service here. You, you represented Nebraska uh, from 2001 to 2013. I got here in 2015. And in the summer of 2013 is when Harry Reid nuked the um, executive calendar. So for, for viewers who happily don't have to be <laughs> on the inside baseball, the Senate's schedule every day distinguishes between an executive calendar, which is the confirmation of judges or presidential nominees, uh, to, to jobs in the government um, and the legislative calendar, which is about passing regular laws. Um, and both of them used to require 60 votes. Regular and, order. That's the OSGL for. Regular order. And Harry Reid changed that rule uh, to redefine the, the ratio three-fifths as the quantity 51 in the summer of 2013. How significant is that moment in the death of the deliberation that you talk about in your book? Well, it's significant because the first time the nuclear option was uh, was used, in effect, and uh, I think that's uh, it's a mistake. Uh, you know, I understand how how a leader uh, of the caucus gets upset uh, when when you can't move the legislation. Uh, nothing will happen. The other side's blocking, and the other side's doing more than than exercising the judgment about it. Uh, they're they're blocking. They're there, if you will, obstructing by going to 60 votes on everything. And when you have a side go 60 votes, require 60 votes on everything, file cloture votes, 
to to stop and obstruct the uh, the orderly regular order of uh, of legislation and uh, nominations and and uh, approvals of nominations confirmations, uh, then I I can see why a leader gets disturbed about it, and particularly if it's on judges or if it's on nominees uh, of the president. One of your uh, recommendations in this book, and I want to tick through a few of them, or have you walked us through them? One of your concrete proposals is that the Senate should restore supermajority requirements, or you know, filibuster opportunities to executive nominations and to judicial nominees, to people who would serve for a lifetime on the federal bench. How would that work? How would you restore the supermajority requirement once you've already lost your virginity? What you'd have to do is put some limitations. Uh, in place. In other words, uh, that, uh, like the old days, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, the, uh, uh, they'd have to stay on the floor. You try to, maybe you, you narrow it down when it can be used and when it can't be used. But, but I think you, you put it back on nominations and on legislation for sure so that, that uh, any kind of limitation on it is, is not, is not uh, uh, its demise. In other words, when, when somebody, if, if judicial nominees have to meet 60 votes, uh, then uh, I think you get, you get a different category of, of, of ju- uh, jurists on the bench. You get, uh, you get people coming on the bench who are more in the mainstream. Because what's happened is both sides are guilty of this. Finding the person on the left or the right that is far as out there that that uh, they want to get the majority on the on the, the bench. You don't turn the Supreme Court into a smaller version, nine member, smaller version of a legislative body. It's not about that. It's not about changing laws, and that's why they're there. It's about it's about imposing justice. It's about doing things and enforcing well settled law. And, decide, and, and, and stepping into disputes and finding justice in the process where, where all uh, parties uh, can look in, at the law before they start and know what the law is and how it'll be. When I, I appointed in Nebraska as governor, the entire Nebraska Supreme Court over eight years, the entire Court of Appeals, and, all, and over half of the trial judges, when I talked to them about what I thought they uh, uh, the requirements were, uh, I, would a- I wouldn't ask them uh, the litmus test questions. I didn't care what they thought about those questions. What I cared about was how they thought they could handle those questions when presented so that it would not be uh, imposing their view, but well-settled law and equity and, and, and that. And I told them very simply, why do I not care about what you think about something because when I come before you and I'm practicing law again, I want to know what the law is. I want to be able to read the law. I don't want to have to read your mind. Now we have people second guessing decisions in the court of the court on, on second guessing the minds of the Senate of the members of the, uh, the bench. It's wrong. It's not supposed to be that way. I'm not naive about this. I think it's it's what we all want is we want a, a judiciary that you can read the law and know what the law is. And a well-settled law, stare decisis, uh, is, is, is there. Not for somebody to get on the bench so they can change the law. It's not about that. It shouldn't be. And I worry that maybe we've gotten there. 
on both sides. One of the things the filibuster obviously does is force a building of consensus for legislation. You and I obviously disagree about Obamacare, but just setting aside the substance of Obamacare, if you could go back in time to, I guess that was what, Christmas season of 2009. Nine. Uh, if you could go back then, do you think part of the reason the law had be- became so controversial was because it was done um, as a simple one-party bill using the budget reconciliation process, as opposed to having built the consensus of the way they just absolutely yeah. regular order and bipartisan uh, uh, vote on that uh, was absolutely, I think, essential. Uh, I was holding out for that as long as I could. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Joe Lieberman, uh, in, in an interview we, we were on with one of the uh, Sunday shows, uh, said uh, this, the same thing. As a matter of fact, he and, and in the, in the uh, foreword of the book, he and, and uh, Trent Lott, who are the authors of the foreword in my book, uh, said that they felt that the legislation they felt best about had been bipartisan. And I really felt that way as well. We, when we got to the, uh, the uh, uh, prescription drug benefit as part of Medicare, that was very bipartisan and it felt very good. And nobody's trying to repeal it these days. When it's not partisan uh, the, and it's bipartisan, I think it has better staying power because both sides have uh, invested in it. And maybe to one degree, maybe it's 50 60, 40, 40, 60, or something like that. But both sides invested in it, and they want to see it work uh, for the people. That's why they why they didn't uh, stand up and vote against it. In other words, uh, I really, really believe that uh, bipartisanship is the answer uh, for the long term for this country. Uh, because I, I think when when you have a situation where, where you've run to the left or you run to the right, uh, you go 100 miles north one year, go 100 miles south the next year, and you say that you've made some progress, uh, you, you've kept the company divided, and, uh, and I think uh, in, a, in, a, in an unholy situation where people then refuse to try to get together, and they keep, they keep tribal, uh, being tribal about it with, with their, their base, as opposed to moving toward what this country is about. It's about compromise on tough issues so that we can all live together uh, in, in, in a democracy. Yeah, I, I think you make a really good point. From 1952 until 1994, yes. the House of Representatives had never uh, changed majority party. And now basically every presidential administration, the Congress flips two years into any new uh, presidential administration, it flips to the opposite party. And if it takes uh, only 51-49 versus 49-51 to to change legislation, the country has to go through a lot of upheaval. And if it takes 60-40 to pass something, it's very unlikely that after the next November, you're going to have gone 60-40 and then all the way to 40-60. You're going to have a whole bunch of people in the middle who become the ballast to maintain some continuity. And the American people can can focus on their neighborhood and raising their kids as opposed to thinking that Washington, D.C. is the center of their consciousness and their tribe. Yeah, we, uh, Diane was uh, expecting that we would, when we were back there, we would be uh, entertaining a lot of, of colleagues. Well, we, we tried. It didn't, there, there really wasn't that much. 
uh, entertaining as, as she had hoped that there would be. So uh, uh, we didn't give up on, on interacting. We just realized that entertaining wasn't the way it was done. It was just spouses, luncheons. Uh, there were, there were, I'm sure you've, you've had some uh, where the Senate uh, gets together, uh, goes to the, the botanical garden or whatever that is, or some other place and uh, sit down and have a, have a sit down dinner with one another. And uh, logically uh, you don't do everything in a, in a, in a partisan way you've mixed intermix and mingle with others. So uh, yeah, they, there's not enough of that today. Uh, and part of it is that uh, jet fumes, uh, people are anxious to get on the plane, start thinking about it Thursday and uh, we're out of town and don't think about getting back. So one of the suggestions that I think it was John Bro who, who, who said that uh, maybe we ought to go back to a five day work week uh, in the Senate, that that by being there on Monday and being there on on uh, Friday would uh, leave Friday, maybe over the weekend, but be there for five days. Well, you know, something has to, to happen to where people in the Senate uh, are are willing to talk to one another and don't have to live in fear that they if they don't uh, follow the, uh, the instructions of a of a leader in their caucus that they're they're very likely uh, going to lose a committee assignment or when it's next time they need something uh, they uh, they're they're denied we got to move away from that and that's probably true in the house. Uh, as well, but we're really focused on the Senate because House is going to continue to be for some period of time partisan. Just that's the way it breaks out. We don't have to have a Senate that is just partisan. Do you think the the cameras in committee hearing rooms are net good or net bad? Well, net is the is the operative uh, uh, word. Yeah, net. I think they're bad, but as a, as a democracy, they're good. But uh, I think they result in, in, in bad outcomes because of bad behavior. I remember, I'm not going to name him, I don't, I don't, in my book, but I remember uh, shortly after uh, I got on the Senate uh, Appropriations Committee, I, I was seated right next to uh, Frank Lautenberg from New Jersey. And of course, the Democrats sat on one side of the room and the Republicans on the other side of the room. And there was a, a freshman, right, just, just who got elected. Uh, in the, the election before, uh, just been uh, uh, in the elect, in just elected and on this on the committee, and he sat there uh, when there were issues about spending. You could see his, his face got contorted, and he would raise his thumb like this, and then go down like that and look across the aisle at us, like, "What do you think about that?" I, mean, I thought I thought it was sophomoric at best, but it said something about what was happening, that, that somebody came now for, for a, a reason to block as opposed to uh, care. I, I bet I never had five words with that person at the time uh, that, uh, that we were in the Senate together. It just wasn't possible. What are two or three of your preferred concrete fixes to restore some institutional um, conversation here? Well, trust. You have to trust one another. You have to trust that if you're going to talk to somebody, uh, that they're going to listen to what you have to say and and share their thoughts back with you. Uh, that that is that's important. Then they're going to have to trust that when you get together, 
that uh, that somebody doesn't just walk away from you, leave you high and dry. It's just the age old thing of, of friendships and partnerships and, and business as well as as uh, for, for personal relationships. You have to have more of that. If you don't have that, then what you, you're, you're not going to cross the aisle and to, to be rebuffed, like get out of here. I mean, oh, something like that. So, so there, you, you, if you feel like you can go talk to somebody, you get, I never had any question in my mind about uh, when, when I went across the aisle to talk to any one of several Republicans that, that uh, they were going to listen to what I had to say. They might have come along. Uh, they might not. Uh, John McCain and I were able to do a, a number of things together. Uh, he didn't agree with me on everything, uh, and I didn't agree with him on his positions on other things, but we could find time. Uh, the other thing is you, you can't be like the hunting dog that went on so many false hunts that the, the owner wants to shoot it. Uh, so you've got to pick and choose things that you're going to raise so that you don't become a gadfly. Uh, if you got something fixed for everything, people aren't going to listen to anything that you have to say. So you have to know your person on the other side of the aisle uh, feel comfortable talking to them. If you don't feel comfortable talking to them, then I don't think that you're ever going to be able to put something together. You know, you've got people on the other side of the aisle you feel comfortable talking to. That's, that's the beginning. You've got to have that. Then I think you have to have some good ideas about why you want to do something together. Uh, I remember having one of my colleagues uh, come approach me on the floor and say, I really want you to support my bill. And I looked at it and I said, I can't. I just, it's not, not good for Nebraska. I'm not sure it's good for the country, but I don't mean to, to be uh, snippy about this, but I just don't think I can. You're asking me to do something that I, I just don't think uh, I'm comfortable doing. Well, then she said, okay, well, I want to come and talk to you. Let me look at this again. She came up there and, and once again, tried to persuade me to support that bill as opposed to looking for commonality. Was there something I could just suggest to make it different? And I would have made a couple of things. And finally, that didn't get anywhere. And I said, look, I, I think I finally understood if, understand why you came up here to, to get a compromise. It's your definition of a compromise is different than mine. Uh, we're look, we were looking for a solution to bring me on board. You were just trying to persuade, persuade me you were right. And I'd already told you, you may be right, but you're not right for what I'm thinking about about Nebraska and the country. And she looked at me, she started grinning. She says, yeah, I guess maybe you're right. And uh, we still couldn't get together on it. But the compromise is where you try to find something. If they can't go with uh, 80% of it, maybe they can go with 60% of it or 50% of it or something, something there that's worthwhile. And you'd explore that. And uh, that's why uh, you, you get some legislation being a little center left and sometimes a little center right. Uh, because you were able to find that spot, uh, call it a sweet spot, if you will, but that spot where both sides were comfortable enough that they could get something done. That's what we did with the, the first Bush tax cut and the second Bush, Bush tax cut uh, that I worked with uh, uh, Senator Susan Collins. I don't want to get her into trouble, uh, but worked with her very closely. And we worked on the second Bush tax cut and uh, we, we found a solution, a compromise that worked uh, for getting money to come back to the states. We 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 went to the to the uh, the president and uh, and she went to the vice president. We said, look, it doesn't make any sense to be cutting taxes in D.C. and ignoring the fact that they're they're having trouble budget wise 
uh, with all the underfunded federal mandates and the like, uh, where they're they're looking at raising taxes in in uh, Peru or Des Moines or any other state capital, and we were able to carve out twenty billion dollars for the FMAP for for Medicare for Medicaid uh, uh, eligible and, and people who needed the needed the, uh, the expenses their health health expenses covered, but the states were having trouble making their budgets balance. So we were able to get money to come back to the states. And I, I write about that in the book. And Susan and I went to, uh, the, and we got it through. Let, let's stay with the states for a minute, because what does federalism uh, have to do with the Senate's decline? Would we solve some of the Senate's problems by empowering governors more? Uh, yes, I think that that would be helpful. Uh, I think there's no question that the governors need to be included. Uh, one of the things that I uh, I ran on when I ran in uh, in 2000. Uh, was to to be uh, bring Nebraska's values to to DC, uh, but bringing them from the standpoint of having been a governor, that I that I understood what the state needed, and that I would I would do that. I would work against, uh, and I did that even as governor uh, with uh, with uh, uh, Senator Bob Dole um, and Governor Association on getting legislation through, and it was, I think it was Senate Bill One uh, back during uh, that time frame. Uh, that that any kind of legislation that was going to uh, uh, spend state money, in other words, unfunded or underfunded 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 federal mandates, that those those had to be have a a, a congressional budget office uh, uh, score on it to see what what they were doing to the states uh, intentionally or unintentionally, but but to try to have a better relationship of what what the states are. And that's what, uh, what Susan Collins and Senator Collins and I sought to do with the, uh, the FMAP $20 billion. You say in your book in the last uh, quarter, maybe you turn to contemporary politics a good bit. And you say that Republicans are scared of Donald Trump. Um, what are Democrats scared of? Because both parties, according to Pew data, um, are, repre- are led by people or elected officials that are moving farther and farther from the center of American life. What are Democrats scared of? Well, I don't think Democrats are scared of Republicans. Uh, I, you know, I think they're worried about what, what certain Republicans have uh, adopted. Uh, uh, it, it's, I, I guess it's the Republican Party uh, has the Republican Party changed so that some Republicans or members of that party are 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 more in line with with let's say with uh, President former President Trump's positions, uh, or there are some who are not. Uh, I think they're more they're more worried about uh, 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 tribalism and uh, a base a Republican base that is farther to the right than it's ever been before. Uh, and I worry about a democratic base and/or policy that's farther to the left than ever before. So I think uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, as I always like to say, enlightened Republicans uh, and enlightened Democrats, uh, worry about uh, extremism, extremism in in, ter- in terms of hyperpartisanship. 
So the, the Pew data would suggest that since the mid-1990s, both parties have moved away from the American center, um, that the electorate actually wants something quite different than they're offered. Uh, let's talk about it from the vantage point of your experience in particular. When you were elected, uh, so you, you mentioned earlier you were elected governor in 1990, re-elected in 1994 overwhelmingly, elected to the Senate in 2000, and then re-elected in 2006, but you were the last Democrat to be elected statewide in our state, I believe. So we've been 15 years since Ben Nelson uh, got elected senator of Nebraska, and nobody's been elected to any position as a Democrat in Nebraska. Uh, What advice, statewide office, uh, what advice do you have to offer to Democrats running in red states or to Republicans running in blue states? I I think you you shouldn't be ashamed or, or shy of reaching across the aisle and having uh, members of the other party uh, support you and, uh, and not whisper about it. In other words, uh, when I ran, uh, always we had Republicans for Nelson, uh, a group of them. They had their own, their own side, uh, their own sign in parades. And uh, I, I started off my, my speeches, uh, uh, my fellow Democrats, independents, and enlightened Republicans, because you're going to be, a senator for all Nebraskans, and you're going to be a governor of all Nebraskans, and that's what you should be doing. Uh, when George Bush came to uh, president uh, D.C. as president, he said, I'm a uniter, not a divider. Well, he brought some dividers along with him, the neocons and so forth, and, and he has to, you have to face that. But but uh, we need we need people today who promise to be uniters, and, and convince both sides that they're uniters. I'm not suggesting that's going to be an easy, an easy task, an easy saving to make. It's going to be difficult, but that's what you have to do. Because if you promise to be, I'm going to be a Republican uh, for Republicans, uh, you're, you're, at some point, what goes around will come around. Uh, I think uh, was, uh, Justice Kavanaugh said that in his uh uh, his uh, admission to the Democrats uh, in the in the hearing. Uh, you know, it's true, though. Uh, and sooner or later, uh, it, it, the, the tide, the tide will, will change. It, it will it'll flow and it'll ebb. Uh, and uh, and the, the circumstances will be different. A lot of the elected officials that you've named uh, tend to be from either more purple states or they were blue dog Democrats. So you mentioned John Bro, and you've named some other uh, Southern Democrats. You were a, a budget balancing governor, f- fiscal conservative, perhaps, uh, as, a, as a Democratic governor of a red state. Are Ben Nelson style Democrats out of favor with the DNC today? I don't think so. Uh, I've, I've not not picked that up. Uh, I, I do think that there's no question that there's a, a left uh, uh, majority uh, within the, uh, let's say, the DNC. At least I uh, I perceive that. I hope I'm wrong, but I, I kind of feel that that is the, the case, that there's a, an inclination towards that. Uh, you know, they, uh, Biden got the nomination uh, against the, if you will, against the odds, uh, because he had so many people who were to his left compared then to his, to his center, like he was, maybe it, it's what isolated him away a bit, but, um, I'm, I'm concerned that the, that's why I think the Democrats, I'm concerned about being, uh, 
taking a, a strong turn to the left, just like the Republicans being concerned about, I'm concerned about going long to the, uh, to the right and pulling more from the center, away from the center, so that we just end up with uh, a tears and taint, up and down, yes and no uh, type of government. And that, that's not going to uh, unite us. Uh, we don't need another 9-11 to unite us, I hope. Uh, I would hope that, that hasn't, that's not what's required. Are term limits part of the solution? No, no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think those have been very successful in the legislature in Lincoln, and I supported them, and I, I backed away. You know, you can learn from your mistakes, and I think it was a mistake. And um, so I don't think we ought to uh, duplicate that mistake with the uh, United States Senate. Could you contrast uh, President Biden with uh, the Senator Biden you served with? Similarities and differences? Well, you know, he's... He's the same guy, uh, having served with him. Uh, I know him. We sat at the table uh, together. It was a fun table uh, in, at the caucus luncheons uh, with Kennedy and Ted Kennedy and Barbara Boxer. And I, I, was, I was the, they were the, the, I was the yang and they were the yin, if you will, something like that, uh, because I was, I was most out of place with my political, my uh, part, uh, politics, uh, but but that didn't matter because we 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 could get together, we could talk about things, and from time to time we would be actually together on on issues. So I never felt really out of place or un, uncomfortable sitting there. One day, uh, Joe Biden got up and he said, "I'll be brief." Well, the the, how, the, the whole caucus broke up in laughter. It, I don't know how long it took uh, Tom Daschle to get us to settle back down in our seats. It was, but but. Biden has always been somebody that's hail hearty and uh, and full of emotion uh, and full of empathy for people and concern. And it's always been there. It's nothing new. Uh, I don't see a different Joe Biden uh, than it's like my hair. My hair is still my hair. It's whiter now. Uh, and Joe Biden is whiter hair now. But it's still he's still Joe Biden. And I hope I'm still Ben Nelson. We are we are nearly at time. If we had another hour, I would want to talk about some of McCook's greats, uh, George <laughs> Morris and Jeff Kinney, who rushed for I think 180 yards in the yes. game of the century in, yes. in 1971. But you are one of four governors from the tiny little town of McCook, Nebraska. Uh, somebody needs to do an ethnographic study <laughs> and try to figure out uh, what's going on in that in the water in that place. Uh, but let's close with the story of uh, you and the prank on your wife in Russia. Oh, my. Well, when Diane had heard from uh, some friends that spent a lot of time in Russia that your rooms are bugged and, uh, uh, you're, you know, they're, they're listening to everything. And, and she was quite concerned about that. And then, then they, there was some suggestion that maybe they had, they had uh, cameras in the room and stuff like that. And uh, I, I tell her, sorry, she was undressing and undressing in the bathroom with the lights off. And I told her, well, they have they have uh, night vision cameras uh, like that just to sort of get her going because she would say, that's not funny. And uh, uh, we walked into the room and I said something uh, derogatory about the Russians. And she, she put like that and pointed at the camera because she's convinced that the camera is, and the bug is in the in the uh, television. And so she was telling others about it. Well, at dinner uh, with husbands and wives, spouses and senators uh, there, 
um, I was seated next to Jim Bunning, you know, the Hall of Famer, uh, the late Jim Bunning from Kentucky. Uh, and guy, he and I became quite quite good friends. We talked a lot about baseball and a whole bunch of other things. Well, I said, I think, and Trent Lott was there too. And uh, I said, you know, I'm going to pull a trick on Diane tonight. Uh, let's get a waiter to sign something on a, on a sheet of paper saying in, in European cursive, Mrs. Nelson, please tell your husband, we are not bad people and sign it Yuri. And, and so uh, I'm sure that Jim gave him a ruble or two a ruble or two to, to sign it. And I looked at it and said, yeah, that's good. And so he said, well, put it under their door and put the room number on it and slide it under the door after everybody's in bed. So about, uh, uh, about two or three in the morning, uh, I, I heard something coming under the door. Of course, Diane sleeps so sound. Uh, she doesn't sleep soundly at all. She heard it. I heard her get up, grab it, run to the bathroom, turn on the light in there, and then come back and jump in the bed with her flashlight showing me. She said, read this. This wasn't funny. This wasn't funny. Look at it. So the next morning we told her, she was telling everybody about it. Next morning we all said, gotcha. She was a trooper. A lot of spouses would have been very upset about it, but nobody laughed harder than Jim Bunny. You know, he, he had a fastball and a bean uh, as a pitcher, but nobody had a better sense of humor when, uh, when you had a good relationship with him. She forgave me, but she said, please don't do that again. The next time I see your bride on a flight as we're, uh, we're boarding out of Epley, I'm going to pass her a note from Yuri. Uh, ben, thank you. Uh, Potomac Books of the University of Nebraska, um, The Death of the Senate. Thank you for sharing this book with us, and thank you for spending this hour with us. Well, thank you very much, Peter. I really appreciate it. It was, a, it was a fun experience. If you ever want to do it again, let me know. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. Be sure to check out our Lectures in History podcast. This week, Henry Louis Gates Jr. discusses his latest documentary with PBS, Reconstruction, America After the Civil War. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts and on the new C-SPAN Now app.